This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel 3, and I will be reading the entire chapter. I have been uh, normally doing uh, these messages from 1 Samuel in the morning, but since I did not have the opportunity to bring the word this morning, we'll continue on in 1 Samuel this evening. Again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 3. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. It came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and while his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord came to Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God, do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts to receive it. Just as you spoke to Samuel that night in the temple, I pray that you would speak to us and that we, your servants, would hear and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working through these opening chapters of book of 1 Samuel over the last few weeks. In chapter 1, we saw a miraculous birth of Samuel, a boy born to a barren woman who would be dedicated to the service of the Lord. And last time we looked at chapter 2, we saw that this arrival of Samuel came against a background of incredible wickedness and corruption at God's tabernacle by his priests particularly the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And for this, we heard that God's judgment would be coming. Now, God's judgment doesn't come instantly. It doesn't come right away. While God has hardened Hophni and Phinehas so that they will not repent because he wills to put them to death, as we saw last week, there are other steps that need to occur first. The worship of God at the tabernacle at Shiloh has been neglected and profaned and defiled for so long that there can scarce be those found who will be faithful to him. And so the priests are about to be removed from their offices. They are about to be replaced because they have blasphemed God's name. They have defiled his sacrifices and they have sinned against his people. But this rebuilding... This reformation isn't going to happen overnight. Really, it won't start in earnest until rock bottom comes, which comes in chapter 4, the worst of the worst, the darkest of days. But today in chapter 3, we do see an important intermediate step on the way to that reformation. There is a question, if the priests of the Lord at Shiloh are so corrupt that they are going to be snuffed out, Who is going to be God's voice to the people as this wickedness is purged and as the worship of God will return? Well, as the house of Eli is nearing its end, God is raising up another, a prophet and a priest who will serve God faithfully. And that is what we see in this boy, Samuel. And so tonight we see Samuel's calling, his commissioning as a prophet. We will look at this tonight in four points. First, we see a silence in verses 1 through 3. Second, a summoning in verses 4 through 10. Third, a swearing, an oath-taking in verses 11 through 18. And then fourth and finally, a service, verses 19 through 21. So again, a silence, a summoning, a swearing, and then a service. So first, we will look at silence in verses 1 through 3. So we find in chapter 3, verse 1, that as this great evil and corruption has overtaken the worship of God at Shiloh, 
Samuel, this boy who had been dedicated to the service of the Lord, um, left there, but visited by his mother every year, who his mother, remember, would bring him robes and uh, other things he would need to continue in the service of the Lord. Uh, Samuel was there serving the Lord even in the midst of all this corruption. Now, we don't have specific details as to what Samuel's tasks were. We do see a few of them in this passage. Um, but at this time, he was still just a boy. In fact, he was still of such an age that he had to be brought new clothes every year. He was a child. He was growing quickly. Um, he probably was assisting with the various rituals of the tabernacle. If the priest needed someone to fetch this or fill that or you know, whatever kind of simple tasks that a child could be trusted with, this was probably what Samuel was doing. Now, while the worship at Shiloh has clearly been corrupted, it must be noted that at least something resembling the worship of the Lord is going on. While the sacrifices were being stolen from by the priests, as we saw last time, the sacrifices were still being done. And some people were still coming to Shiloh to truly serve the Lord. We, of course, saw this before with Hannah, and we see it now in Samuel's service. While there was this great corruption, there is at least something resembling the worship of God by a remnant of his people that continues. And yet at the end of verse 1, we find a, a very devastating declaration. It says, in the, And the word of the Lord was rare. In those days, there was no widespread revelation. The word of the Lord in the form of prophecy and vision, as it often came in that time, would not come often. Now, if you think about it at that time, the scriptures were mostly incomplete. They would have had the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But pretty much all of the rest of the Old Testament remained to be written. And so this word of vision and prophecy was how God would often speak to his people. He would speak through prophets. But in this dire period near the end of the time of the judges, the rebellion against God was so great that God was withholding his word from his people. Now we did see in the last chapter, we did see this one unnamed prophet who did come uh, to pronounce judgment on Eli's house. But as this verse indicates, this was a rare thing. This was not something that was happening often. Now, this is not the only time we see this language of the rarity of prophecy and the rarity of revelation used in Scripture. For instance, there's another time in the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. There would be times when, because of the wickedness and stubbornness and rebellion of his people, God would withhold the word. His word would be wasted on them. It would have been scoffed, mocked, and hated. And it had been scoffed, mocked, and reviled so much that God was sending it no longer. 
Now, what a sad and terrifying reality that would be to know that God has deemed a people unworthy and unfitting to receive his word because they have so despised and rejected it. It is, after all, by the word and only by the word that faith and salvation can come. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have God's special revelation, his saving revelation for us recorded in Scripture. And yet even then, we often see in our day a starvation for the word, a famine of the word. Now how, you might ask, do we see this? Well, you could go to many churches in this country, probably even some around here, and you could hear all sorts of different things. You might hear how God has a wonderful plan for your life. You might hear a lot of practical advice of how you can have a better job, better marriage, better kids, and otherwise have your best life now. You might even hear some gripping social and political commentary. You might sing some songs that are really pretty, that uh, really make you feel good. They're up there with the best stuff you'd hear on the radio. But in a lot of these plays, there, in a lot of these places, uh, a lot of these places that might resemble churches on the outside, there is one key thing that is missing, and that is the Word of God. We live in a time of rebellion. The people of our present age, in many ways, demand evil. There is the obvious examples. There's things like abortion, demanding the right to murder children. There's the profaning of marriage and God's design for sexuality. But then there's these often less obvious examples, things like uh, rampant materialism, this greed and lust for wealth and power, which is covetousness. And so much of our society is built around that, built around selling that vision of, of wealth and power. Or we see so much false worship where people try to worship God according to their preferences and pleasures rather than God's word. And on and on it goes. Not just outside the church, but in many that profess to be the church. And so even now, the world is in many places and in many ways starving for the word of God. Now perhaps this starvation and this decay at the time of Eli's priesthood was best illustrated in Eli himself. Look at verse 2. His eyesight had begun to grow dim. He was going blind. He was not just blind physically, but he was a blind guide. Spiritually, he was failing to steer the people in the way that they should go. Look at how he had been in chapter 2, a guide to his wicked, thieving, and abusive sons. All he really had to offer them, despite the great and open wickedness they were doing at the tabernacle, was a mere complaint. No anger, just resignation. Now we also see here a distinction in verses 2 and 3, uh, as one commentator notes, in the physical location of Eli and Samuel. And that physical difference actually tells us a spiritual truth. Samuel is in the tabernacle. He is near the ark. He is near where the presence of God was said to dwell, where God had chosen to set his name. Now, where was Eli? All we hear is that he's in his own place. He's off somewhere else. 
Or for that matter, where are Hophni and Phineas, who are supposed to be the priests? We don't even know where they are. This difference between Samuel and Eli and their physical proximity to the presence of the Lord illustrates a divide in their spiritual proximity. And this is not just because Eli is old. It's not really because he is old at all. I mean, how many of the saints of God serve God into old age? You can look at so many examples from Scripture. Abraham and Sarah have their child of promise, Isaac, when they are ages 190, respectively. He was 100, she was 90. Moses served God until he died at the age of 120. But for Eli, it is not so much that he is old as it is that in many ways he seems to have given up. His sons have turned worship into a scam. The word of the Lord is gone and Eli is there. He is blind. We find elsewhere that he is fat. And he is just content to live out his days going through the motions of sacrifice and ceremony, even knowing that God's blessing on it and on his house has departed. Now, another detail we see here in these opening verses is that in verse 3, these events happened before the, lamb of, or before the lamp of God went out. So this lamp was probably something you may have seen. It was probably a seven-branched menorah. They would use those at the tabernacle. They're still a part of Jewish culture and observance today. But Exodus chapter 27 required that these lamps be burned overnight from dusk till dawn. So temporally speaking, these lamps help us to place the time when this was going on. It would have been in the very early morning hours. It would have been as dawn was approaching because the lamps were about to be allowed to go out. But there is also a bit of symbolism in where we find the lamps. For as bad as the situation was in Israel, where worship was being profaned and the word of the Lord could not be found, all was not yet lost. It was pretty dark, it was pretty dim, but there was still a little bit of light left in Israel. There was still a remnant of God's people. Again, we saw this with Hannah, and in a faith that also is being put in practice through Samuel. And so now Samuel's story is about to begin in earnest. This brings us to our second point, a summoning which we see in verses 4 through 10. So in verse 4, the Lord speaks and calls Samuel by name. And even in these early morning hours, Samuel is eager to serve. I don't know about you, but I know that when I am awakened in the early morning hours, it's, it's not a pretty sight. Things don't go very well. It takes me a minute or two just to figure out uh, where I am and, and who I am and why on earth I've been awakened. But Samuel hears a voice at this very early hour of the morning, and he gets right to work. He thinks at first that the voice is Eli, and so he gets up, and he doesn't walk, but he runs to Eli to report for duty. But Eli was not the one who had called Samuel, and so he sends him back to bed. Then this happens again, a second time. Samuel hears the voice and runs to Eli again. Eli still had not called him, and so he sends Samuel back once again. 
But after this, in verse 7, we get an important piece of information. It says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Now, this does sound somewhat similar to something we saw in chapter 2, verse 12, where it said that Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, did not know the Lord. But the difference was that they never knew the Lord. In fact, they had been condemned to die without the knowledge of the Lord. So what we see here about Samuel is he did not yet know the Lord. He is about to. Though there has been this time of great wickedness and corruption among the priests, the ones who were supposed to be leading the people in worship of the Lord, though there was this famine of the word, all of that is about to change, starting with Samuel. In verse 8, yet a third time, Samuel hears the voice calling him. He once again makes his way to Eli, and only now, finally, does Eli realize that something must be going on here, particularly that it was the Lord who was calling Samuel. I mean, practically speaking, you can't blame Eli for taking this long to figure this out. He was old. And if he had ever heard a word from the Lord, it would have been a long time. For his sons had never even heard it. The word of the Lord and the visions from the Lord, the revelation of the Lord were rare in those days. There was this famine of it. But there was at least enough devoutness left in aged, frail, and blind Eli to realize that the Lord must be speaking to Samuel. So Eli advises Samuel to go back once more to bed. And if he hears the voice again, simply to reply, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. After all this time of relative silence from God, God is about to do a new thing. He's about to raise up a new prophet, the first in a line of prophets that will speak God's word to Israel. And so the call comes again. Samuel, Samuel. So though Samuel does not yet know the Lord, the Lord knows him by name. He has called him. He has set him aside for a special task, starting here and starting now. And Samuel replies as he should, as any of us should when we come to hear the word from the Lord. Speak, for your servant hears. Then having looked at this silence, followed by this summoning, we now turn to our third point, which is a swearing. There's actually two swearings. God is about to swear something. He is about to, again, directly to Samuel, announce a great judgment to the house of Eli. And so this prophetic word is introduced like this. It says, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, they will tremble, because it is a great and fearful thing that the Lord is about to do. There is one other instance of this language of tingling ears. It appears in parallel texts in 2 Kings 21.12 and Jeremiah 19.3, which both describe the same event, which is the destruction of Jerusalem, the carrying away of Judah into captivity. In other words, this language is reserved for something fearful, something dreadful, a major change, a major development that is about to happen. 
Really, this judgment foretold on Eli and his house is something of a microcosm of that exile which is to come. God had delivered his people out of Egypt by grace into a prosperous land. He had vowed to be their God and they would be his people. But then his priests at Shiloh are apostate. They have rebelled against God. They have turned away from him. For this, they will be cast out of the priesthood. But there is coming a time in the future where something similar will befall the whole land. They will forget their God. They will not have faith. They will rebel against him. And they will refuse to walk in the Lord's ways. By their actions, they demonstrate that they are not the Lord's people. And so they are cast out from him into exile. But that exile was still centuries off. For now, there is this matter of Eli's house, beginning in verse 12. In that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Remember from last week, the great judgments that had been foretold. There would not be an old man in the house of Eli. Any that survived would weep and beg. The priesthood would be taken from them and a righteous priest would be established. And then to that, to what we heard before is now added in verse 13, that God is about to punish the house of Eli forever. This is not just a temporal judgment, a judgment in this world or this life that was described before. The loss of position or premature death or poverty. No, there are eternal and spiritual consequences. The sins of Eli's sons of his house, they are the most severe of sins. The sons were blaspheming God by their actions. They were making God an object of contempt and derision among the people. They were treating his glory and his majesty as insignificant things. And Eli knew about this, and he wouldn't really do anything about it. And for this, Eli, too, is held responsible. God will punish Eli's house for the iniquity that he... That is, that Eli knows. We know from the previous chapter, Eli knew about this great wickedness, and all he could muster was to whine a little bit about it. He wouldn't take any decisive action to stop it. His sons deserved to die, and it would have been better that they died, even if Eli himself had executed that judgment, than to pollute the sanctuary, abuse God's people, and to blaspheme God's name. Because Eli's sons are hardened in their sin, because there will be no repentance, because it is God's will to put them to death, we see in verse 14 that the iniquity of Eli's house, that is the guilt for their sin, will not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The time for repentance and the time for forgiveness is over. Not only will Eli's sons face the judgment of this life, but they will face eternal condemnation. As I said last week, I'll say it again. God will not endure our sin forever. If we know that we are clinging to unrepentant sin against God, he knows, he sees, and he will judge. We cannot hide. And so we ought to, while there is still time, flee from our sin 
and embrace the forgiveness and the new life that is in Christ. So, this word has come to Samuel. Samuel waits until the morning, and he resumes his work. Apparently opening the doors, opening the gates was a part of his tasks. But he, as one might imagine, given the severity and direction of this message, is afraid to tell Eli about it. Eli, perhaps having a suspicion as to what this could be about, given what happened in chapter 2, he calls Samuel to him. In verse 17, we see Eli's swearing. He takes an oath of imprecation, an oath basically calling down judgment. He says, may God judge you if you withhold anything. And so Samuel tells him everything. This is perhaps Samuel's first test as a prophet. When he is given the message from the Lord, will he be faithful to deliver it? While Samuel was afraid, he does deliver the message. Now, Eli's response in verse 18 is fascinating. You would think that hearing such a severe word of condemnation, that that would be upsetting to him, but we do not see that Eli gets angry. We do not see that he is sad. We do not see that he lashes out. It would be understandable if he did. But what does Eli say? It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. So he acknowledges that God is sovereign over this situation. He knows and believes that God will do what he has declared. In fact, from this response, many commentators conclude that despite the wickedness and decay around him, that Eli remained a believer, even though his house was cursed and even he shared some complicity in the sin some say that Eli must have still been a faithful man. But even if that is true, Eli has failed in his role as a priest. He's failed as a father. And the time for he and for his house is near an end. His legacy is not going to be one of faith and obedience. It will be one of weakness and destruction. For Eli, the story is ending. But for Samuel, it is just beginning. We see Samuel on the rise, and we see Eli on the way down. And this brings us to our final point today. After this silence and the summoning and the swearing, we now see a service, specifically the service of Samuel, as it begins where Eli's service is ending. We see in verse 19 that Samuel grew and that the Lord was with him. While Eli is withering and dying, and the Lord has departed from his house, Samuel was being blessed with growth and favor. We read that not a word of Samuel's fell to the ground. This means that everything that the Lord gave him to say came to pass. We will see next time, Lord willing, a specific fulfillment of this prophecy against Eli's house. In the chapters to come, God frequently gives Samuel visions and prophecies, and they are fulfilled exactly as he says. Furthermore, not only does Samuel grow, and not only is the Lord with him and his prophecies come true, but the people recognize that Samuel is a prophet. In fact, he's something of a prophet priest. He's of the priestly line. He serves at the tabernacle. But he also is given the word from the Lord as a prophet. 
then finally we read here that the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by his word. So because of this wickedness and corruption of Eli's house, the Lord had not been at the tabernacle in Shiloh, the place that the tabernacle had been since Joshua and the Israelites had come into the land. But now, through this vision given to Samuel, this rising prophet and priest, the Lord and his word have returned to the place where they ought to be. Now, when we consider this reality of a prophet priest bringing the return of the word of the Lord to a place that had long been without it, we should be looking ahead in Scripture. Just as we saw before with Samuel's miraculous birth and the parallel it has to later events, so too do we see the growth and we see the return of the word by this prophet priest the prophet and priest who is to come, the one miraculously born, the one who is Jesus Christ. See, John the Baptist was miraculously born after 400 years, roughly, of silence from God, from the end of the authorship of the last Old Testament books. John became the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then the Lord came. Jesus Christ himself, miraculously born, more miraculously born, born of a virgin, God, but also man, prophet, priest, and king, but a child. But we also see something similar in Luke 2.52, similar to what happened to Samuel. We see that the boy Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. According to his human nature, Jesus grew, he learned, he developed, though as the perfect God-man without sin. And with Jesus, the word of the Lord returns, and worship is restored, and the true people of God recognize Jesus for who he is. Now many are also hardened, and they turn away, even those who ought to at best known God's word and worship. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they were the ones who conspired to put Jesus to death. These parallels between Samuel and Jesus, they're not accidental. Samuel is a type. He is a foreshadowing of Christ. While he is not the reality... There is something in Samuel that caused people then to look to one who was to come. And it causes us to look back to the one who has come and fulfilled all of these things. See, Samuel, he is an imperfect fulfillment of those things that were said about him. Eventually, Samuel will die. His ministry will end. But Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king who rules and reigns forever. So when we see Samuel, we ultimately should look to Christ, who is the perfect and final prophet. So we have seen tonight our four points. God's silence, which is broken by a summoning, the swearing of action, and then Samuel entering God's service. Now what are we to make of this story? If you're like me and you grew up in the church, you probably heard this story, might have even, uh, you know, seen it modeled on a flannel board or something like that. 
And back in those days when I would hear this story, the takeaway was something like this. When God calls us, we should listen. That is always true. Of course, if God calls us, we should listen. That's not really the main point of Samuel's calling here in 1 Samuel 3. This story tells us about Christ, as I have said. It points us to the prophet, priest, and king who is to come. It also tells us things about ourselves in relation. Just as the challenge was put forth last week, it echoes again. Whose house do we belong to? Which people are we a part of? Are we to be numbered with the sons of Eli, the apostate people, those who are disobedient, those who are rejecting God and on their way to destruction? Remember, God will not toil with sinners forever. Eventually, he will destroy them. He will cast them out. He will hurl them into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. Or are we to be numbered with the people of God? the people of Christ, of which Samuel was a part, and a type, and a messenger. Do we believe in God's word, which comes to its fullness in Christ? Do we believe that Christ is our righteousness, and in thankfulness for his gospel, turn from our sins and strive for uprightness and holiness? In our age, where the, world, where the word of the Lord is stifled and suppressed and opposed, where we have a famine for the word in our age, will we be ready to respond to God's call with service and faithfulness? Those are the two options, the only two options, the two paths, the two cities, the two peoples to which we can belong. While in our text tonight we see that time is up for Eli and his sons, there is still time here today for any who may not believe. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. You, weary sinner, can find forgiveness and rest in Christ. But there will come a day where this forgiveness cannot be found. So do not delay. Embrace Christ today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. Even as it is a word that in many ways can challenge us and convict us, as we look at a world, a world around us that in many ways sees this famine of the word of the Lord, we have so many Bibles, but many of them sit on the shelves and collect dust. We have so many churches, but many of them are not faithful to your word and to your purposes. I pray that we would be a people that are found faithful in you. I pray most of all that we would believe in the gospel of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that because of the great salvation we have, we would be inspired to love you and love neighbor and to serve you as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.